Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Alrighty, everyone, here we are at episode five of Crash Course Catholicism. Now, this episode is a big one. And that's not just me, right? Don't take my word for it. The church tells us that this is not only a big one, but the big mystery of our faith, the Holy Trinity. So point number 234 of the Catechism, such a satisfying number, tells us that the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. It is the most fundamental and essential teaching in the hierarchy of the truths of the faith. So basically what the Catechism is telling us is that this mystery of the Trinity is right at the heart of our faith. And why? Because it's at the heart of that question of who is God? Like in the last episode, we were talking about, you know, God's attributes. What's God like? God is truth and beauty and goodness and love. But in this episode, we're, we're burrowing even further down and going right to the heart of like, okay, but what is God? Okay. And right at the heart of that question, we find the Trinity. So, okay, the Trinity is the most fundamental teaching of the church. But it also helpfully happens to be the most incomprehensible mystery, okay? Like, this is the mystery that St. Augustine was trying to wrap his head around when he got sassed by the little angel on the beach. The idea that God is three persons in one being and how that actually works is a mystery that is too big to fit into our heads. And actually, on that note, if you haven't yet listened to the first episode on faith, please go back and do that now before you listen to this episode. That episode is like a prerequisite for this one. Okay, so just to recap, we've just said that the Trinity is the most important and fundamental mystery of our faith, and it's also the most incomprehensible mystery of our faith, which is like simultaneously terrifying and deeply reassuring, because on the one hand... I'm like, okay, crap, how do I fit this into a 30-minute episode? Like, how do I do justice to this incredible mystery in one episode of a podcast? But on the other hand, it's like, well, I can't, (laughs) and no one can, and that's fine. In fact, if we got to the end of this episode and you were like, oh, okay, this makes complete sense, I have no more questions, that's super easy, done – That would be a sign that I've done something wrong, okay, that I've actually oversimplified this mystery. And actually, it was really helpful when I was preparing this episode. My sister sent me a quote from Pope Francis' 2018 apostolic exhortation, Gaudete et Exultate. And in this quote, Pope Francis says, When somebody has an answer for every question, it is a sign that they are not on the right road. Someone who wants everything to be clear and sure presumes to control God's transcendence. So in other words, if we were to take God's infinite mystery and transcendence and try to kind of cut it down to size, we would end up reducing it to something kind of dull and colorless. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't try to find a way into these mysteries, okay? That's exactly what we're going to do in this episode. I'm not saying that it's pointless to even try, But we just have to bear in mind that there's a difference between finding a way into the ocean and trying to make the ocean small enough to fit in our heads, okay? 
So you will almost certainly walk away from this episode with questions, and that is completely fine. In fact, it's good because it means that you've reached out and touched the mystery of God, okay, rather than flattening him out into something that fits inside your head. Okay, now one more point that I want to make before we get into the episode. In this episode, we're going to be dealing with a lot of fairly dense theological stuff, right? Okay, there's a lot of information in here, and it might at times be a little bit kind of overwhelming or intense, or at least I certainly found it to be so when I was preparing this episode. And I got to the point where I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I'll just do a version of this episode that goes for 20 seconds, and it's just me being like, the Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's kind of like a triangle. That's the end. Bye. (laughs) And it's tempting to do that, right? Because it's a lot of intellectual legwork, like it's hard work trying to wrap our heads around this stuff. And it can be tempting to just think, oh, let's just keep it simple. Let's just keep it basic. But I was reflecting on this and a couple of thoughts came to mind. One was that the point of this podcast isn't just to perform an intellectual exercise, right? We're not just here to learn information about God. Rather, ideally, this is a step towards a closer relationship with a personal God. And if you want to get to know any person on a deeper level, you need more than just the basic information about them. So I was thinking about, like, imagine if you went on a blind date, okay, with a random guy that someone set you up with, and you sat down opposite him and you were like, okay, what's your name? What do you do? How old are you? And then he answered those questions and you were like, cool, okay, I'm going to stop you there. That's plenty. (laughs) I don't need to know anything else. That's enough for me to go on. Please tell me nothing more about yourself. Okay. You couldn't expect to have a particularly deep or enriching relationship with that person if you approached it like that. So the basic information is really helpful, okay? Saying that God is kind of like a triangle, that's a great place to start. But we need to go further and deeper than that if we really want to get to know God on that deeper, more personal level. Okay, cool. So I just wanted to begin by establishing those couple of points. And now let's get into it, the Trinity. Okay, now before we get into the mechanics of how the Trinity works, Let's begin by establishing the fact that the Trinity works at all, right? The fact that God must somehow be Trinitarian. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Let me illustrate. I was recently on a plane, right? And I was sitting there, I had this moment where I was sitting there thinking like, this is amazing. I'm flying. Like, I'm suspended in the air in like a large metal bird that is man-made. That's incredible. How does that work? I've got no idea. But clearly, it must work because I'm in one, right? And if you tried to explain to me the mechanics of how a plane worked, oh my gosh, it would go straight over my head. I'm like the furthest thing from an engineer or a mathematician or like, honestly, the other day, my 14-year-old sister asked me for help with her year eight maths homework. And I was like, nah, man, you got to go find dad. (laughs) I can't help you with this. Year eight maths, way over my head. It's not an area where I have any expertise. And if you tried to explain how it worked to me, wouldn't make any sense. But Clearly, it must work because I'm in one and it's flying. So it's kind of the same with the Trinity, right? We might not be able to grasp exactly how it works, but what we can establish is that it must work somehow, okay? Somehow God must be Trinitarian. Now, how do we do that? Well, you might remember in previous episodes, we've talked about how God is love itself. And we've also said that love requires three things – a lover, a beloved, and then the love between them. 
And if you're missing one of those three things, then it's not really love. So like love without a beloved doesn't make any sense. Okay, I can't just love nothing. I have to love something. Now, when it comes to God, we don't just say that God loves more than anyone else. We say that he is love itself. So if that's the case, then that must mean that within himself, he has those three parts of love, the lover loving the beloved. And without one of those three parts, he wouldn't be love itself. So this is the way that Peter Kreeft puts it. He says, if God were only one person, he could be a lover, but not love itself. Okay, so what he's getting at is that God needs to be three persons and not just one person if he's going to live out those three aspects of love, love, beloved, and the relationship between them. Okay, so in other words, God has to somehow be Trinitarian, okay? He has to live out these three aspects of love within himself. And it's actually really important for us to remember this because sometimes we can sort of assume that the Trinity is something almost incidental, right? Like God could really have been anything. He could have been five persons in one God or just one person in one God, okay? He could have been like the gods of any other religion, but he happens to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in actual fact, what we're seeing here is that by definition – When we say God, we mean Trinity. Okay, so God by nature must be Trinitarian. But what does that actually mean? Well, in Christian theology, we say that God is three persons in one being. Now, that at first glance might sound like a total contradiction, right? Like completely nonsensical. Like we're saying God is one God, but he's also three gods, okay? Or he's one person, but he's also three persons. And if that were what we were saying, then it would be a complete contradiction. It would be like saying God is a square circle, okay? But that's not what we're saying. So what do we mean when we say God is one being and three persons? Well, in order to answer that question, We have to begin with the idea that a being and a person are not the same thing. So how does that work? What's the difference between a being and a person? Well, think of it like this. A being refers to what something is and person refers to whom something is. So I am a human being. Okay, that's what I am. But I'm also a human person, Caitlin West. Okay, that's whom I am. And those two things are different. They're not the same thing. And we can see this in the fact that in the created world, there are plenty of things that are beings that are not also persons. Okay, so a frog is a being. Yeah, a tree is a being. A rock is a being. But those things, we don't say that they're persons. So what makes me a person then? Okay, what gives me personhood? Well, this is a question that was addressed by a philosopher in the 6th century AD, and his name was Boethius. And he defines a person as an individual substance of a rational nature. So basically, what makes us persons is our capacity for rational thought. 
So when we look at other beings, right, we can see that they lack that capacity for rational thought. So you're never going to see a cow at university, right? You don't have philosophical discussions with your houseplants. I mean, maybe you do, but they don't answer back, right? You're never going to be able to convince your dog that it's morally wrong for him to eat the cat's food because it doesn't belong to him. Human persons, on the other hand, have this capacity to understand concepts on a level that other beings do not. And as well as having this capacity for rational thought, otherwise known as an intellect, as a human person, I also have what we call a will That is, I have the capacity to make choices based on my rational thinking that override what my animal instincts are telling me. So say, for instance, I'm really hungry and I see a plate of food. I can rationalize that, okay, that actually isn't my food. It belongs to my sister and it wouldn't be fair of me to take it from her. I can also use my will to override that animal instinct that's telling me just eat the food and make the decision to go and make a sandwich for myself in the kitchen instead of stealing from my sister. So these things, intellect and will, are what make me not just a being, but a person. And what's really interesting, actually, is even when you look at modern day kind of ethical philosophical debates around this notion of personhood, and people will try to argue that, you know, apes and monkeys should be considered persons. And often the first thing they'll do is they'll try to demonstrate that monkeys have the capacity for rational thought and they have the capacity to override their instincts and act with benevolence and selflessness, etc. So that understanding of personhood is something that is still with us today. So returning to our definition of the Trinity, God is one being, right? He's one what? There is only one God. But within that God, There are three distinct persons or three who's, yeah, three distinct intellects and wills. Now, this can be really difficult for us to conceptualize because in the created world, every human being is also one human person. Okay, we've never seen an example of one human being with multiple human persons, okay? But just because that's something that we haven't seen or experienced, that doesn't make it impossible. So at this point, it might be helpful to make use of a couple of the kind of images and analogies that apologists have used to explain how we can have three persons in one being. So Fulton Sheen talks about H2O, right, which can be water, ice or steam. And each of those three things is distinct from one another, and yet they are all H2O. He also talks about the sun, right, which is made up of substance, light, and heat. And each of those things are distinct from one another, but together they are all the sun. C.S. Lewis talks about how God is three persons while remaining one being in the same way that a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Now, each of those images and analogies is limited and insufficient, okay? It doesn't fully explain how the Trinity works, but it does give us a kind of visual that might help us to understand how you can have three persons in one being. Now, we've said that there are three distinct persons in the one being of God. And note that we use the word distinct, Okay, and we don't say three different persons or three separate persons. Now, why is that? Why do we use the word distinct? Okay, 
So if we turn to the catechism, point number 253 reads, The divine persons do not share the one divinity among themselves, but each of them is God whole and entire. Okay, so what does that mean? What's the catechism saying? Basically what it's saying is that it's not like the Father is one third of God, the Son is the other third, and the Holy Spirit is the final third, okay? We divide God up into three different people. Instead, each person in the Trinity is completely God. And what that must mean is that each of the persons of the Trinity has the same attributes as the other two, okay? Because they're each fully God. So there are no differences between them. So let's think about it. What does it mean when I say I'm different to you? What I mean is that I have attributes that you don't have, okay? So I like the Beatles, you like the Rolling Stones, I'm tall, you're short, etc. But if the three persons of the Trinity are each fully God, then they all share the same attributes, which means there are no differences between them. So that's why we say that the three persons are distinct from one another, but they are not different from one another. Okay, now this point raises another question, which is, well, if the three persons of the Trinity are all fully God and they're all totally identical, then what distinguishes them from each other? What makes them distinct? Okay, that is a great question. And it is a question that, thankfully, the Catechism answers. So point number 254 of the Catechism reads, The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct from one another in their relations of origin. It is the Father who generates, the Son who is begotten, and the Holy Spirit who proceeds. Okay, let's unpack that. What's the Catechism saying? It's basically saying that the only thing that distinguishes the three persons of the Trinity from each other is their relationships with each other. So the Father generates the Son and not vice versa. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and not vice versa. Okay, They have three distinct relationships with one another and that is what distinguishes them. Okay, now that sounds pretty abstract. So let's use an analogy to illustrate what we mean here. Imagine that you've got a human father, right? And this father has a son. Now, the dad and his kid are so similar to each other that it's like they're clones of each other. You know how you see that sometimes? You see like a dad and his kid and you're like, that is insane. You are so similar to each other. Okay. Now, because they are human beings, there are going to be many things that distinguish this father and son from each other. But one of the things that makes them different and not the same is the relationship that they have with each other. So the dad is the dad, okay? And he created his kid, okay? He didn't come from his kid, okay? The dad is the dad and the son is the son. And that relationship, it doesn't matter how similar the two of them are, it doesn't matter if they're literally clones of each other, that relationship between the two of them is set in stone and it can't change. And it's one of the things that will differentiate them from each other. Now, when it comes to the Trinity... The relationships that each of the three persons has with each other isn't just one of the things that distinguishes them from each other. It's actually the only thing that distinguishes them from each other. The fact that the father generates the son and not vice versa. Okay, now we've got to be a bit careful here because when we use language like, you know, the father generates the son, 
It might make it sound like we're saying that the father existed before the son did, okay? And then at some point in time, he generated the son. And then the father and the son loved each other, and then the Holy Spirit came into existence. So if you remember in the last episode, we talked about how it's really easy to make the mistake of putting God in time, and we have to be careful to avoid that in this instance. When we say the father generates the son, we're not saying that the father existed before the son did. All three persons of the Holy Trinity have existed for all eternity, okay? So how does that work? How can God generate the Son but not predate the Son? Okay, let's think of it this way. If I say to you, think of an elephant. Okay, what occurs when you do that, when you think of an elephant? Well, two things happen. The first is the act of thinking, okay? And the second is the image of the elephant in your head that is generated by that act of thinking. Now, the thinking and the thought are two distinct things, okay? And one generated the other. The thinking generated the image of the elephant. However, both of those things occurred at the same time. Okay, they're simultaneous. When I say think of an elephant, you don't go, okay, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and now an elephant appears. You think of an elephant, okay? Both of those things happen at the same time, the thinking and the thought. So in the same way, even though the father generates the son, the son is begotten by the father, that doesn't mean that the father predates the son. Rather, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have all existed for all eternity. Okay, now the Catechism, when it's talking about the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it uses the language of the Fourth Lateran Council, okay, which occurred in the 13th century. And it says that the Father generates the Son. Okay, the Son is begotten by the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, I want to sit with those terms for a while. Okay, now earlier we said that as a human person, I have an intellect and a will. So I have the capacity to think rational thoughts. Okay, so I might think, I wonder where my pen is, or I really should call my grandma, or did I hang my laundry out this morning? Okay, now because I'm a human person, each of the thoughts that I think are limited, right? And by that, I mean that I can only think one thought at a time. And that one thought doesn't encompass everything that I could possibly think, okay? I can only cover one thing at a time in a limited way. So while I'm thinking about I should really call my grandma, I'm not thinking about doing my laundry. It might feel like I am because I might have those thoughts in very quick succession, but I actually don't think multiple thoughts simultaneously, okay? My thinking is limited. Now, when it comes to God, he is unlimited. So rather than having many limited thoughts that occur one after another, God only has one thought, and that one thought is so complete and so infinite that it encompasses all possible truth and knowledge. In fact, God's one thought isn't just an act of thinking, it is thought itself. And his one thought 
isn't just a true thought, it is truth itself. And what did we say in the last episode? That truth itself is God. And in the same way that when I think a thought, that thought comes into existence, and by that I don't mean that it becomes matter, it's not material, but it does exist, right? It participates in existence. God's one thought is so infinite and complete that it doesn't just participate in existence, it is existence itself. So another way of saying this is that God's one thought is God himself, okay, because it leaves nothing out. So this is actually how Aristotle puts it, okay? He says, God is thought thinking itself. So this is what we mean when we say that the Father generates the Son, okay? God the Father, in the one movement of his intellect, expresses himself so completely that that thought is himself. And that's what we call the Son. Okay, so where does the Holy Spirit fit into this? All right, now, when I have a thought, I can love that thought. Okay. Now, by that, I don't mean that, you know, my heart starts pounding and my hands get clammy and I go weak at the knees. Okay. Unless that thought is like Tom Hiddleston, in which case that is what happens. But what I mean when I say I can love a thought is that my intellect recognizes that thing as a good and my will moves towards it. Okay. I desire that thing as a good. So I love the idea of justice. Yeah. Or I love the idea of happiness. Or I love the idea of some dark chocolate right now. Okay. So I can have a thought and then I can love that thought. My will moves towards it. Now, in the same way that my thoughts are limited, my love is also limited. Okay. It is an act of love. It isn't love itself. But God is unlimited. So the Father's love for the Son is so complete and infinite and perfect that it isn't just an act of love. It encompasses all possible love. In fact, it is love itself. And if you remember in the last episode, again, we said that love itself is God. So to recap, when we, with our intellect, recognize something as good, our will moves towards that good, okay? We love that good. Now, God is goodness itself. So when the Father has his one thought, which is the Son, the Father and the Son recognize each other as goodness itself, and then their wills move towards each other in an act of love that is so complete that it is love itself. So that is what we mean when we say the Father begets the Son and then the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay. <laughs> so there's a lot in there, okay? We've covered a lot in this episode. And as I said at the beginning, you will almost definitely have lots of questions and there is so much more that we could say about the Trinity. But this is kind of an introduction, yeah, a little taster. And so if you want to go further into any of these ideas, you want to think more about the Trinity, here are a few resources that you might start with. Archbishop Fulton Sheen 
lived in the 20th century, okay, and he spoke a lot on radio and on television, and he was really well known for being able to put things really succinctly and clearly in layman's terms, which is really what we need when we're thinking about the Trinity, okay. So there are a number of audio and video recordings of him available on YouTube, speaking on a number of different topics, but there are a couple of videos specifically about the Trinity. You could also check out a book of his called The Divine Romance, because there's actually a whole chapter in that book on the Trinity. Another place you might go is an apologist called Nabil Qureshi. So Nabil Qureshi was a convert from Islam to Christianity. I found his work really helpful because one of the big differences between Muslims and Christians is this concept of the Trinity, okay? So for Muslims, the Trinity is a complete contradiction. It makes no sense. And so because Nabil Qureshi was a convert, he had to do a lot of thinking around the Trinity. So he got really good at explaining the Trinity really clearly. So he has a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, which is just actually a beautiful book in its own right, and you should read it. It's fantastic. It's also really helpful if you have Muslim friends and you want to chat to them about their faith and get to know what they think and learn about some of the main objections that they might have to Christianity. Anyway, he also has videos on YouTube, okay, if that's more your thing. Another place you might go is the works of Peter Kreeft, okay, because, again, he's just such a clear thinker and writer, and his stuff might be really helpful if you want to think more about the Trinity. He actually has a bunch of articles on his website, so that might be a good place to start if you're not ready to go out and buy a book by him. Okay, now that's by no means a definitive list of helpful resources on the Trinity. Those are just a few things that I came across in preparing for this episode that I found helpful and that might be helpful for other people. But on that note, something that I've been thinking of doing, because I want these episodes to be a resource that people can then use to kind of go further and deeper in their thinking if they want to, I was thinking of putting into the show notes, just writing out the different resources that I've made reference to in the episode. But as well as that, I was thinking if anyone is listening to an episode and you think, oh, actually, I read this book that, you know, discusses this idea really clearly, or there's this poem that I think really encapsulates that idea. Like it doesn't have to be straightforward. It can be out of the box. I love using literature and quotes from books and poems to kind of elucidate ideas. So if you're listening to this and you think of a resource that might be helpful, please feel free to send it to crashcoursecatholicism at gmail.com and I'll add it to the show notes so that other people who are listening to these episodes can make use of that resource as well. Okay, now that was a pretty big episode and if you've stuck with it, then congratulations, well done. The next episode you'll be very happy to hear is going to be super light on because we're talking about creation and like what God made and like God made the angels and why did he make us. It's way less theologically dense. It's going to be a really nice break. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you're looking forward to it. But for now, that's it from me and I will look forward to seeing you all next time. Okay, bye. Bye.